Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And uh, we're recording this on your birthday, as we did the last. Yay! Happy birthday to me. Yeah. Happy yeah. birthday to you. Yeah. There's actually, I have a bunch of friends in the area that all have birthdays roughly in a week of each other or so. So we tend to have a collective party. Ah, it's so, the birthday week. Yeah, it's like one of those birthday week things. So it's actually, it's, we're going to do the party next weekend. But I got 18 pounds of corned beef brining in the fridge right now. Oh, and I'm, I'm going to turn about half of it into pastrami. Oh, that's great. And we'll see what happens. But, I'll be uh, right over. Indeed, <laughs> 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 you, you know, it's like you got to plan three weeks in advance for stuff like this. So it's, true. it's been brining for a while. I was actually thinking I could pull a piece of that corned beef this weekend and test it, make sure I'm, you know, things went well. You know, that or I got to order a bunch of pizza. And that would be uh, terrible. And then, yeah, I'm actually trying to do some uh, some dry smoking of the pastrami when I use the points, the fatty bits for the pastrami. Mm-hmm. So I want to do a little more rendering on it. Um, you know, not to talk about food too much on .NET Rocks, but <laughs> I found a really good way to cook pork belly. Oh, really? Yeah. First of all, I went to Costco and I got a pork, a big pork belly, like the full thing. Yeah. Without the rib bones and everything. And they also take the skin off. And normally I like the skin, but in this particular situation, it was no, I liked it without the skin. And I cut it up into what you can only describe as one pound slabs. So think of when you get bacon a pound at a time, um, you know, and it's, it's all in one block, but they're sliced. That's the size. And I put them, uh, I cooked them sous vide under vacuum in a large cooler that I've created, a Coleman cooler with a Anova Precision cooker in it. I drilled a hole big enough for that. So I could cook all of these at the same time. And all I have on them is salt and pepper. So the sous vide preparation is 134 degrees for two days. So medium rare for two days. Pretty much. And basically after two days, it's soft and pliable. And then I slice it into steaks, probably about, you know, half an inch to an inch thick and sear the snot out of them. And so that uh, is quite crispy and delicious and tender. There you go. That's, you're welcome. Awesome. Yum, yum, yum. (laughs) Yum, yum, yum. Well, now I'm hungry. (laughs) Yeah, right. Let's Let's get to better know framework. Roll the music. All right, dude, what do you got? Well, it's very significant that Dana Epp is here for his uh, maiden voyage on .NET Rocks. Mm-hmm. He's been on Run As Radio several times, maybe 10 times. And yeah. uh, and and we're talking security. So I, this is the a, a good enough time as any because this is coming out on the 29th of July. And by then, we should be in full swing with a new podcast. Oh, really? With yours truly and Patrick Hines and Dwayne LaFlotte. Wow. Okay. Nice group. Yeah. And it's called Security This Week. So it's not necessarily a news show, but the security conversations are application security topics through the lens of current events. Okay. So whatever happened that week spawns the conversation that we have with a deep dive into security, including uh, Patrick and Dwayne's experiences with customers. Um, you know, they've worked with the FBI. They've worked with lots of high-profile customers to figure out security uh, issues and do pen testing and all that stuff. So they've got a lot of stories from the field and a lot of experience. And and I'm the everyman, as you know, that's what I do. Yeah. I uh, ask the dumb questions. And it's not really for developers. It's for anybody who wants to keep the money that they make in their business and not lose it to security attacks. Yeah, it's as I'm simple kidding. as that. You know, it's also for people who just use computers and who want to be up on the latest attacks and how to prevent them from happening to you. So good, good stuff, man. Yeah, man, security it, this without week. A doubt, security is on everybody's mind, it seems, these days. You can't get a day by without another huge ransomware attack. Yeah, it really is a problem. So anyway, that's securitythisweek.com. Hopefully it's up. If it's not, there'll at least be a boilerplate uh, stay tuned page there. But anyway, that's what I got. Who's talking to us today, Richard? I grabbed a common topic show 1742, the one we did with Paula uh, talking about ransomware, which was like an online event with Techorama. That was good fun. You know, she had an article recently in Forbes magazine. Yeah, Forbes Poland. Yeah. And, you know, 
being, you know, she built a hell of a company. Secure is a lot of people. They're doing, they're, they help governments deal with attacks and stuff. She's very busy. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, we, we could have to say we knew her when, huh? We did, you know, back in the day. But this particular comment, you know, one of the things we talked about was one of the companies she was working with paid a ransom and the decryptor didn't work correctly. It only it decrypted many files, but not all of them. And ultimately, it was her team debug the decryptor to be able to finish recovering data for the company. Wow. Which is, you know, that's a weird moment for you. Right. So, and that's why we call the show Debugging Ransomware. <laughs> so, and yeah. Cowgley has this comedy. He goes, I was waiting for the debugger part. Uh, yeah. Maybe I misunderstood what you meant by that. I thought you were going to go through code level details of some buggy ransomware yep. so he could fix it. That would be interesting. It's like, yeah, I don't think I really want to go through ransomware in detail. I like the decoder is a different thing. Yeah, on a radio show. Look at line 157. <laughs> Uh, Cowboy goes on you mentioned encrypting backups I had one of my customers go through that the whole company was wiped although they did recover in a few months and one thing they did immediately buy was tape backup because you can't encrypt that I hope and it's like right actually if you use your tapes to back up encrypted files then your tape backups are encrypted and some of this ransomware with their command control systems is sophisticated enough that that's what they do that they they learn how your backup systems work and then they wait and make sure that all your backups are encrypted too before they trigger the ransomware. So wow. it, they're they're as evil. They're pretty damn evil, man. They're clever about what they do, and uh, they are trying to take out your backups if they can get away with it. So cold backups, backups that are disconnected from the rest of the system, so that somebody remote can't get to them, uh, mm. are one strategy. But you know, and a big part of this is: Do you understand restore times? Mm. Well, how long will it take to recover? I'm sure yeah. Dana can speak to this, but, you know, there's no fast recoveries from ransomware, you know, in, in terms of real business. If you can get operational in a week, you've done well, whether you paid that ransom or not. Like, it's tough. These are very difficult things to clean up. and People just underestimate the damage done. Right. So I think the, the uh, takeaway here is do everything you can to prevent your people from falling victim to ransomware. Yeah. Uh, yeah. but you, you know, don't want it's, that. it's hard. So Calgary, thank you so much for your comment. A copy of music to is on its way to you. And if you'd like a copy of music to write a comment on the website at .net rocks.com or on Facebook as we publish every show there. And if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a copy of music to And definitely follow us on Twitter. He's at rich Campbell. I'm at Carl Franklin and, uh, Dana Epps, uh, security passwords are as follows, yada, 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 <laughs> blah, 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 zaba, zaba. Did you really think I was going to give you Dana Epps password codes? <laughs> Good luck. Good luck with that. And, <laughs> and the, the laughing guy you heard right there is Dana Epp. He is a serial entrepreneur who founded several security-based software companies that have gone public or sold through acquisition. Dana has spent the last 25 years focusing on software security and has been awarded the recognition and designation by Microsoft as an enterprise security MVP for the past 14 or so years. In these past few years, he was also awarded for his Azure experience in cloud and data center management and was appointed as a Microsoft regional director. Congratulations, Dana, on all those accomplishments, and welcome to .NET Rocks for the first time. Well, thank you very much. I got to update that bio. That's like four years old. You know, it's one of those things. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know what? I thank you very much. You know, I've been on run for, oh, God, I don't know how many times, Richard, but it's always so much fun talking I about. I, I think I owe you a sub sandwich anyway, but it's been a, it's been a <laughs> how decade. About, how about a mug? I would love to see one of those <laughs> run as mugs. a mug? Have I never I sent still, you a mug? You're in the same bloody city and we never see each other. You know, it's one yeah. of those things. So, um, but I, oh, this is fun. Though, Holy crap. It's 16 shows. I just counted them. You're on, you're on episode three. Wow. You know what? Security is always around, right? It's one of yeah. those things. And, and uh, you've, especially- you've always had stuff to say. That's, that, that's well, never been a question. But I don't, think, I don't think you've missed a year. 
Like you've been on at least once a year. I think I was embargoed for almost one year where I was, it was hard. You had to catch me at just the right time. Yeah. You know, I I remember pinging you saying, Hey, can we? And you're like, no, I really can't. Yeah. I think you're in the midst (laughs) of an acquisition or something. It's like, I cannot speak publicly right now. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's one of those things. So, um, and you know, security hits everywhere, right? Run as is awesome for it pros wanting to learn how to better lock down and manage, you know, you're talking about things like backups and recovery and meantime to recovery on that stuff. And, you know, you guys were talking about like, you know, prevent people from getting ransomware. That's just mm. not the reality. People are going to click on dancing pigs. The real thing is to assume breach and find a way to recover as quickly as possible. Yeah. And while it's, you know, it's optimum to say that, you know, even the largest of companies can take months to recover. If the IT strategies are in place the right way and they're more concerned about keeping the business afloat than looking at uh, analysis, um, meantime, recovery doesn't have to be that long if the right strategies are in place. And that comes down to just, you know, knowing and managing um, the recovery. And mm-hmm. so like they can back up, they can take out your backups. But if you have point in time backups, hourly, weekly, monthly, and those are stored in places that you can't reach, there are ways to regenerate that stuff and redeploy. But people don't do that because automation is scary because right. in many cases, automation ends up becoming a bigger problem. Um, but then think about that from the other side, you know, .NET Rocks is all about, you know, the developer's experience and all that. And sometimes I wonder if we as uh, developers uh, aren't doing enough to help our ops people to be able to know when attacks are happening even before they happen. And Interesting. It's an interesting scenario. And I know, Richard, we've talked about this before of just how do you, as we shift left from a developer's perspective and get into more DevOps or DevSecOps, how can developers and IT work closer together to get that high fidelity signal to know that things are safe, that things are secure, and that at the end of the day, the information, which is what all of our code is is meant to manage um, and manipulate, uh, can be done so in a safe manner. And so I think I, uh, I have a question, and you know, because I'm the I'm the new guy to security here. If I have if my company is using GitHub for our repos and they're checking in changes all the time, and we're we're we we don't have any on prem hardware, you know, nobody's pulling up a browser on the web server to to install anything. It's all like in Azure or Amazon or whatever. Um, are are we still at risk? Because we have backups essentially in in GitHub, and you know we can just pull changes. Uh, how how are we still at risk? Well, think think about it like this. It, it, especially for developers, you know, the crown jewel of the organization, as far as a developer is concerned, is their source code. And so there's lots of different aspects of source control that can be a risk, right? And it's not just direct risk, such as, you know, you, lo- you listen about things like the SolarWinds attack, where they actually attacked into the CICD pipeline to be able to sign a malware that allowed them to distribute it to customers through their update mechanisms, right? Yeah. That is extremely difficult to be able to uh, defend against if you're just saying I'm allowing people to, you know, hey, I have passwords on GitHub. Well, is that enough, right? Like there is stronger authentication mechanisms that allow you to, to help protect the communications to the service. But what happens if someone gets in? If you take a look at a majority of the re- uh, security research that's out there, you know, every year, like Verizon re- releases its data breach report. And the number one way people get in is they find credentials of authorized users and use it in an unauthorized manner. So yes, it's still possible, even if you have a lockdown repository that's private, that if someone was able to access a developer's machine and they have, let's say, their keys stored there so they because they don't want to enter creds all the time, that that means that someone else would have the mechanism to push up a change. Now, that doesn't mean that actually always happens because you can put process in in any matured uh, um uh, CICD pipeline where you could have guardrails where things like merging into major branches need peer review and you have the capabilities of of having, you know, SAST and other components so that you could do static code analysis to look for uh, certain types of behaviors. But that's directly on the code. And that's that comes to security maturity of, of code on there. A lot right. of times it's not direct, it's indirect. It's the third party modules that you're just expecting to consume through NuGet or NPM or whatever package manager you may have on there, where if those then get infiltrated, you then become infiltrated. And mm-hmm. so if you have this inherent trust into a package that you rely on that may not have the same security um, validation as you, 
you may be exposing that the next time you do a build and you don't even know but, it. But aren't you always able to roll back to the previous build that didn't have this version that was susceptible and then start over from that from that version? Well, it's potential, right? First off, you're saying after the fact. So after you've been breached right. and they've now taken over all your machines, doesn't matter at that point. Uh, I like, see. You yeah, know, I get you. I get the you. other the other side is you can <laughs> you you can lock in versions, but most people don't. So if you take a look at more modern, uh, let's say front end development frameworks, right? And and you're anything from React to Angular. I'm I'm using those aren't new, but they they've been out for a long time. But if you take a look at how like VS Code or, or Visual Studio, uh sets up the the scaffolding for a lot of this stuff when people add these they just go and say give me the latest version of x so the problem is is that that means that they're highly at risk that they're going to consume new code that could be vulnerable but the opposite is just as bad they lock it into a version and then a fix comes out and they're not aware of it and this is where it starts coming down that you have a responsibility at looking at third-party libraries and monitoring and managing that as part of your sprints you should be looking and seeing what changes have occurred and things i'm taking a dependency on so that i have the ability to then verify and say are those important to me? Do I need to make changes? Right. Um, because you just know, don't always know and you're not, you don't have direct visibility. There are tools and technologies out there that can help with that and bubble that up for you to tell you like, Hey, this package has had security updates. You should probably look at it. And, and, and Git's doing awesome on some of this stuff because yeah, it GitHub actually will. Yeah. Like GitHub's doing a lot to, to tell you, Hey, this has vulnerable packages. Yeah. You really should look at it. The only problem with that is that it's after the fact. It's usually a little too late down. So, mm. um, you know, adversaries that are trying to target major applications, they may have a window of exposure that could be anything from days to weeks to in some times months or years. It all depends on just the exposure. Just because things are, are sometimes uh, available openly and let's say open source doesn't mean they're actually getting that. Um, auditing all the time. So, so GitHub has, you know, some mechanisms as you were just mentioning to look and to identify malicious code. Yep. So this is another reason to only use packages because you can have NuGet packages that aren't on GitHub. Yep. You have NuGet packages that people just create without a repository. But if they're on GitHub, that's one more level of confidence that you can have, right? And it's, yep. so it's a, a good reason to use packages that are already vetted. Yeah, vetted and that you've actually vetted it to certain releases. So you only want to, you yeah. know, in many cases, unless you, you know, you're very brave, you shouldn't be taking on a, you know, the daily builds and trying to consume them. But sometimes you get frustrated because you're just trying to get a job done. You know, a package works, has some fixes. Right. You take a dependency on that. And then all of a sudden, you don't know to get it back into mainstream later. And that's, this just comes down to the, the maturity of, of, having a process in place, right? Like you should have engineering change orders for, I want to add this new package in. And there should be people reviewing that and saying, why do we need this package? Is it absolutely necessary? And mm -hmm. if it is, are we willing to take on that risk? And a lot of uh, developers, especially when they're new, they're, the world these days is like, oh, just consume this, do a pip, you know, do a pip install and include right. these requirements and bring them in. And you're like, but do you know what those are? And mm. it's, you know, there's attacks that, that I've seen out there where they've been able to get in and contribute and update things like a requirements.txt and a Python package to yeah. automatically install a, a malicious package and leave it dormant for like six months. And then they take advantage of it. You've done everything. You've done your code auditing reviewed and everything looks fine, but that dormant sub package ends up becoming the, the risk that's on there. So you need to know who the packages are and you need to take, uh, have confidence in taking your trust in it. And once you do, then you need to lock it down. Don't always say suck in the latest version. You know, you should know about the latest versions and you should be able to, 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 to be able to look and review them regularly, but you want stability. So you want to know what you're taking a dependency on and then, you know, check it from time to time. Um, but that requires a process of also thinking a little further ahead. And a lot of times you don't because you take a trust on a package and that package has taken a trust on other packages. How deep do you go? Well, I, I think part of that process needs to be some developer who understands code can go, let's say your three changes, you know, three versions back and go to the diff of each of those versions, walk through the code, see what was added or modified and determine whether or not it was malicious. Right. So if you're going to count on some, you know, a GitHub or another repository to do that for you, you're, that's fine, but there has to be some proof that they have done that work and and they have you know declared it as safe so it's just like you're saying it's it, it depends you have to yeah. be, be careful 
do your due diligence. Well, and you have to also understand the the dev cycles of the people involved, right? Like if you look at some of Microsoft stuff for Azure, there is a ton of packages that they make available for all the different languages to make life a lot easier to consume their APIs. Yeah. Uh, but some of them aren't open source. Like the, the packages are open source, but some of the critical components behind the scenes aren't. So you have to also have a level of trust with that team. Um, to, to make sure that when they're taking dependencies and, and bringing stuff in that, that you're willing to accept that, um, which I think is reasonable. And I think that's all a balance of, you know, security is about risk mitigation, not risk avoidance. And that's not just right. in the IT world, that's in the code world as well. If you take a dependency on a package, you need to trust it, at least to a degree, or you need to look at and try to determine what is its uh, damage potential in what it's able to do for you. And there is that conservative mindset here, of like, don't be the first to take that update. Right. Let yeah. other people spend some time on it. You know, they that that rarely serves you poorly yeah. to not be first on that. The power of the package makes life so much easier because you can start playing Lego. You don't need to be an expert on something to consume it. But my mm-hmm. my pushback on that is if you don't understand the code that you're bringing into it, you probably shouldn't be using it. Like it's it's one of those things that um, I get trying to speed up and getting things released. But that's when mistakes happen. And sometimes you need to question, you don't need to reinvent the wheel. If there's something out there that millions of people have taken a dependency on and it works and it does its job, okay, then take a look at it and yeah. see and try to understand. But understand what it does and make sure you're, you as a team, it shouldn't be just a single developer saying, I'm going to take this package on. There really should be like in every company I've always worked with, we always create um, an advisory board where they literally, if you want to add a package, there's an engineering change order that goes in and there's a review of it. It's not mm. like we're going to spend for ever looking at it but we have we have certain milestones and goals that we're looking at like how old has this package been how long has it been how many security advisors how many updates do they have you know who is maintaining it is there a backing of a commercial entity especially if it's an open source package um and and you know and it goes on and on go look at the issues if it's in github can we take a look and see what kind of 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 uh, defects are currently being reported or issues how quickly are they being fixed when was the last time they've been updated you know all these things matter um um, and then once you start looking at that, you can make an approval to say, do we wish to take that risk on? Now, is, is that a blocker before they can even tinker with the with the library or can they take it into their branch? But before it's allowed to be merged, it has to go through the advisory board. It, it depends on um, it really depends on who you are, I guess, in the organization. When I look right. at it, we actually have um, you can take spikes where if it's like, hey, I want to learn. I want to add this new capability in there. Then take a spike on that. We'll actually. Uh, use that as research time that is going into a branch that will never be merged um, uh, without, you know, full review. And in those scenarios, it may very well be that that gets even more scrutiny. It's not your standard two person peer review approval process. There may be more involved, especially if it's something that's might be critical, like an off package or something where, you know, maybe security needs to be involved. And sure. Yeah. You want to spend some time with it. You know, it seems, it seems to me guys that there's room for um, an organization and maybe a foundation or something to be in the business of, validating a third party to validate new versions of packages that are, you know, that are put out there where, you know, they don't have the benefit of GitHub's like, you know, AI to. to it, it would be nice in a GitHub repository to see what companies have taken dependencies on these things and what, at what versions is like, Hey, if Microsoft is using this library internally, I have pretty high confidence that it's not full of malware. Right, but also a stamp of approval, you know, that's saying somebody here has gone through all of these changes and approved it as being safe. Mm-hmm. I think the trick you get into that is when you start talking about those types of reviews, what is the mandate and what is like who, what's the ultimate goal that people are trying mm-hmm. to do? There's no right. standards body for that stuff. There are commercial companies though that do some of this stuff, right? Like there's, I, I never know how to pronounce it, but it's like, uh, sync.io, I think it is. S- NYK, I think it is. They have like a, a package, uh, open source package, uh, scanner. And it's literally looking at all the packages and it's got a vulnerability database and it tells you of everything it sees and finds and you can subscribe to that service. And there's tons of other services That's like cool. that. I like so you that. Can, you can put that in your pipeline, right? So it's like, hey, before this merges, there's a guardrail that's going to check this stuff and say, mm-hmm. is this a package that has vulnerabilities? Or is this a package that has had a certain amount of vulnerabilities over the past period of time? Or is this a package that is, you know, old and antiquated? And um, 
uh, you can use those. I, 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 I don't use that particular solution, but I know that exists and I know there's mm -hmm. others like it. Um, and it's, I think worth looking at, um, from a package management point of view, just to be able to rely on trusting a third party that's doing that kind of stuff for you. And they're doing that because they want to make money, right? Like they, they provide a service for that. You can pay it's for it. Yeah. And it's yeah. a product. And, and, and so you know that what their motivation clearly is. It's hard a lot of times. You can take a dependency. I know lots of great packages that I've taken dependencies on where Microsoft employees were working on it, but then they stopped working on it. And then it's right. just like, it wasn't a Microsoft package, right? Like, yeah. or it was they were referred to. Contributions. Yeah. Like I take yeah. a look at things like uh, the MSOL stuff that uh, for, for JavaScript and, and Angular uh, for years, Microsoft didn't have an official package, but they had Microsoft employees working on it. That didn't give me enough trust on it. But then when Microsoft released an MSOL package for that, then that, that that's the Microsoft authentication library. Yeah. Then I was able to look at that a little more in detail. Problem was they were very slow. MSOL has been always behind the, by like almost a year from where everyone else is in trying to consume authentication services. So then you start looking and saying, do I want to take trust in other people's work because it's actually more modern for the modern stuff? Or do I wait? Well, wait. And the reason you want to wait usually is because, well, it's been audited and reviewed and Microsoft's putting their, their stamp on it, right? Yeah, it's a, it's a trade um, of risk. Do you want that? Is that new feature that important? You're willing to take on new risk or can you wait and reduce your risk? Although we got this reality that, that we're in such an agile world now that by the time you're willing to take on that risk, that package has already moved so far ahead, right? Like yeah. they, they, we're now seeing some APIs, they're going to be, uh, online and offline in a matter of a window of three years. And that, that gets scary if you're taking a dependency on something. Um, maybe if it's just an MVP or something and you're just trying to get it out the door, you don't care. But once you're trying to build, you know, production code that has to last some of the time, you want to know that there's some maturity and management that's going on on some of that stuff. So, you know, we've, I've talked about in DevOps talks and things like that bringing devs into a firefight as an IT person, like it's the weekend, the site's gone down and you hit a certain point where the, where the checklist hasn't brought it back up. We, we still haven't diagnosed the problem and having a senior dev come get involved probably remotely. And, you know, rule number one is don't write any code. This is about your insight into code, helping us yeah. diagnose the problem. And the byproduct of that process has consistently been that the dev says, wow, we need to write more things to let you see what's going on in the app. Absolutely. That there's a, there's a blindness there. And they only really see that when they see how blind IT is during one of those firefights. And yeah. I saw your Honey Tokens talk and thought, this is the same thing. This is one of our applications was used, it was exploited, and only post facto have we come through the logs to see they worked at it for months. Yeah. And, and if we had had some mechanisms to sort of raise a fly to say, there's some weird stuff going on here that we would have had a chance to shut that door long before they took advantage of it. Yeah. Well, you, you know, it's one of those benefits I get, you know, because I sit on both blue teams and red teams. And I, you know, so a lot of times I'm thinking about how would I offense in the offensive trade craft, how do I go about attacking applications? Mm -hmm. And then you look at it and say, okay, as a defender, how would I stop that? And the reality is most developers aren't security professionals. They don't sure. know how hackers are going to breach, especially web applications. But what ends up happening is there is so much we could be doing to help get signals to the ops guys so that they can be forearmed and forewarned. And it's, it's interesting because when we start thinking like that, we start putting the edge back on the defender, which is not easy because we always hear, right? The attacker only needs to find one way in. The defenders have to find every way in yeah. how to defend Stop against it. And that's yeah. so hard. And I almost feel like you jumped over something there, Dana, which is how long does it take us to know we're being attacked? Huh. Yeah. Well, and you know, it's interesting because, um, most times, most people find out after the fact, or they may have the greatest security devices that are able to look at network intrusions, and all that stuff, and that's way too late. By that time, they've already pivoted and got in far too, 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 too deep into the system. But it is possible through honey tokens to be able to get early warning detection by creating deceptive mechanism that will troll 
attackers. Because if you look at something like the MITRE attack chain, which is a, a really good way of defining and describing how threat actors will infiltrate systems, there is always some recon mechanisms and some post-exploitation techniques that are used that are, are helpful as, as, as signals. So like, let's, let me give you a super simple example. Before we dive into this honey tokens, let's break for this very important message. Sweet. How did you choose which internet service provider to use? The sad thing is most of us have very little choice because ISPs operate like monopolies in the regions they serve. They use this monopoly power to take advantage of customers, data caps, streaming throttles, the list goes on. But worst of all, many ISPs log your internet activity and sell that data to big tech companies and advertisers. To prevent ISPs from seeing my internet activity, I protect all my devices with ExpressVPN. So what is ExpressVPN? Well, it's a simple app for your computer or smartphone that encrypts all your network data and tunnels it through a secure VPN server so that your ISP can't see any of your activity. Sadly, every site you visit, video you watch, or message you send gets tracked by ISPs or other tech giants who can then sell your information for profit. That's the reason I recommend ExpressVPN as the best way to hide your online activity from your ISP. You just download the app, tap one button on your device, and you're protected. And ExpressVPN does all this without slowing your connection. That's why it's rated the number one VPN service by CNET and Wired. So stop handing over your personal data to ISPs and other tech giants who mine your activity and sell off your information. Protect yourself with the VPN I trust to keep me private online. Visit expressvpn.com slash dot net. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash D-O-T-N-E-T to get three extra months free. Go to expressvpn.com slash dot net right now to learn more. Are you under increasing pressure to ship code faster than ever before? Then it's time to work smarter with Raygun's modern approach to error and performance monitoring. Raygun gives you instant visibility into the health of your software. And what makes it so unique is that it not only tells you when something's gone wrong, it shows you exactly where it's gone wrong and how to fix it, right down to the line of code. Made by developers for developers, Raygun has built a suite of monitoring tools that are used and loved by thousands of software teams every day. Monitor every corner of your tech stack with widespread language support and native integrations with GitHub, Jira, Slack, Bitbucket, Octopus Deploy, and more for even greater visibility. Visit raygun.com to resolve issues faster and to deliver flawless digital experiences for your users. That's raygun.com to get started on your free 14-day trial with plans starting from as little as $4 per month. And we're back. It's .NET Rocks. I'm Richard Cowell. That's Carl Franklin. Hey. But yes, it is my birthday. Happy birthday. <laughs> and this is my friend Dana Epp, who uh, usually hangs out with me on the uh, run as side of things. But this whole conversation about Honey Tokens is such an interesting idea for devs to support ops in detecting threats early on when when you know that whole idea of it's like you didn't you put up watchtowers but didn't put anybody in them right yeah. like you built those wall but if nobody's looking to see if there's somebody picking away at the wall to see if there's an opening there like you you only find out when the wall falls down <laughs> right if you're even looking that way a lot yeah. of times by the time they get past the wall you think everything's okay and they're getting deeper and deeper into the app so uh, yeah. So where, where honey tokens really come in is you can get as complicated or as simple as you want. The two things I'm going to say is if you're ever thinking of doing honey tokens, remember that things like security engineering should be doing done first. You should be doing all of the things that they tell you to do from sanitizing input and all the, the relations of threat modeling and all that stuff. But outside of security engineering, are there things that developers can do to help assist ops in understanding what's going on? Mm -hmm. So let's talk about how a hacker would recon an application. One of the first things they're going to do once they find a target. So there's a whole bunch of recon they're going to do to, to, to find the target itself. But once they know they have a target, what's one of the first things they're going to do? They're going to take a look at the application, try to understand how it works, what's this tech stack, what's running. And they're going to do things like look at your robots.txt because they know if they go and put in certain disallow directives that say, 
do not go and index this these things. It's not a security component, but what's there to help to reduce the strain on spiders going through your application and looking at things. So if you go and say, hey, I want to disallow slash admin portal, uh, they know that, uh, you know, the spiders know not to go and try to index that. But as an attacker, I'm looking at and saying, okay, they have an admin portal over there. Great. <laughs> and there are legitimate reasons why those need to be there and they should be looked at. So if you as an example, this is a great, great example, go to azure.microsoft.com mm-hmm. and you go take a look at their uh, slash robots.txt. There's a whole bunch of things that they're telling you not to look at. And right at the bottom, it's a disallow API. Did you know it? Azure.microsoft.com slash API. There's a set of APIs there. Probably not. As a hacker, I damn well want to know about that. Yeah, sure. It's right? really they give me a path. So let's turn that around. Let's use that as a deceptive technique to start getting early warning knowledge. So put something in your robots.txt that isn't normal. And what I might mean by normal is um, hackers have these word lists and you can go into like on GitHub. Uh, um, there's the sec list, which has the, the uh, all of them common directory brute forcing. So if you use something like Durbuster or GoBuster or, or Burp Suite to actually mm-hmm. enumerate and look for directories, uh, you don't want to have something in your uh, robots.txt that's on there because then obviously it's going to start flagging, you know, the script kitties that are just trying to rattle your cages. Mm-hmm. But if you actually put something in there, like a GUID, right? Like the people are like, hey, wait a minute. Why the hell is there a GUID in there? What What's over at that resource? And then they go to that resource. Start questioning. Wait, 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 wait a minute. Why are you going there? You're not supposed to be going there. You're not a, a process that should be looking at this stuff. And it becomes your first entry point to say something's going on. It's not enough to say an attack is occurring, but no. it's enough to say, mm. hmm, this might be interesting. But now combine it with other deceptive uh, strategies at the same time, like maybe inserting into JavaScript a routine that could never, ever be executed under normal operations. Right. Have a pr- parameter that, hey, if the parameter is admin or, or you know, um, uh, valid equals one, and it will trigger down into this JavaScript code, and that code block goes to an empty endpoint that just returns an empty array as an example. And by the way, logs their information so you can exactly. Snag Mm-hmm. That's exactly the point, right? So what happens is when they go and can reconstruct that API request to see what's there, you now have the ability to collect their browser information, their IP information, anything related to what they're doing, and he starts creating a fingerprint. Now, let's be honest. Attackers aren't stupid. They're not going to be running this from their home, hopefully. They're you going know. to be doing this through some ephemeral resource that they've spun up in some cloud service to scan you, but that's okay, or they're coming through a Tor node. What you're looking at is fingerprinting the rest of their res- their system and start correlating that activity together. So if we all of a sudden see, hey, they hit the robots.txt, went to an endpoint we know they're not supposed to, then decompiled my JavaScript that's been minified and, and started trying to call into those API endpoints, their intent, it's a high fidelity signal that someone is spending time trying to understand how your app functions. Right. And that starts starting to be something ops people care about. Because when they have to correlate millions of records, like when you're doing something like a brute force against a a server, you're going to get so many 404s, right? If you've got hundreds or thousands, like some of these um, some of these brute force dir- uh, directory lists have like 50,000, 100,000. I have one that's almost a quarter of a million records. If you have 250,000 404 messages hitting on your system, it makes a lot of mess from a log perspective to right. be able to see what's going on, what's real versus what's something scripted. But when you start correlating all this activity together, you start being able to attribute an at- a real attack and the ops people can really appreciate that. But you can go deeper than that. As an example, you can use deceptive parameter pollution in a way so that you might have parameters like admin equals true or dev equals false that have no real meaning to that route. But you could simply track for that and say, okay, do I see that someone's trying to change that parameter, um, which means they're trying to manipulate how the session interacts? Want to even have more fun? Build it out so that it responds with a fake a stack trace when someone's manipulating that stuff so that they spend time wasting time trying to figure out what they've manipulated, even though it has no business impact to the real application. Now you gotta be careful on this kind of stuff because you need to treat this just like any of your production code. If you're going to do something like add this, it needs to be resilient. You need to know you're not going to cause fragility in your stuff. So I would never say like use deceptive cookies with your session data. That's just, it's just, there's a high risk that's not something you want to use together. Right. That doesn't mean you could add extra cookies, though. 
Nothing says you couldn't create a cookie that said API SID that had a certain value in it. Maybe base64 encode it so it looks like you've actually made some effort to hide some of the information. And then if that's got some data in there, like an endpoint that they go to, you know that they're looking at the cookies, trying to manipulate and change them. And in those scenarios, that is a high fidelity signal of people up to no good. Yeah. And these are the things to start linking together. And this is how developers can help the ops team because we can now filter out through millions and millions of records to get down to a, a transaction chain to say, okay, we can see they're doing this and this and this. The only way this entry would be in the log file is that they've done all this work right. to trade, to run that particular API that's only there to log that it got run. Right. And so we start being able to work our way backwards to provide signals. Now, here's a reality. No matter how much deceptive technology you put in there and how good your security engineering is, at some point, someone may still get in. Mm -hmm. But there are still things you can do from a deceptive perspective that would allow you to know about it. As an example, it is possible to create honey tokens right in your databases so that you could have things what I call trap tables. Basically, it could be a view like uh, admin creds, which is linking from your user's table and, and, and pulls out some other information. But what you do is you can use in most databases an ability to create triggers based on activity. So as an example, if someone was to select that view, you could trigger a function. And that function could be posting to your application so you could consume it in your security logs to get it to your ops people. Because what that means is if someone's hitting that view, that means they're in your database. Yeah, so maybe right. they found a SQL injection vulnerability or they've actually got a foothold and they're actually on the SQL server itself. But now you actually have some evidence that they're doing things they're not supposed to be. Now you got to be yeah, careful. I, you know, I like that because it might put, turn up an internal attacker too. Exactly. Mm. But you got to be careful because you need to make sure you work with ops to understand how they do things because nothing would suck more than getting a call at two in the morning to have to go in because your database has been breached only to find out it's the weekly backup running. Right. Because remember, some of these maintenance routines are going to, you know, look at these tables and grab them and back them up. So, so you have to account for those type of behaviors. But at the end of the day, it's, it, it is possible to put in these honey tokens in a way so that they trip up the um, attackers because a lot of attackers these days are going to use tools that can help them. So things like SQL map exist so that they can um, enumerate, exploit, and exfiltrate your data. So you can basically run this command. And if it finds a SQL injection on a form, as an example, it will then go in and suck out all the data for you. But they don't know that that view may exist that should never, ever be called, right? right? And then if you have things like a, a, mature, a mature ORM system or you have some sort of uh, uh, data manager that's in between the database and your application, you could do things like poison records. Like you could create columns that are dedicated to being fake data or spe special data. I, I look at it as like a data loss protection guardrail, right? It, mm -hmm. it has the ability to say, I could have a, um, maybe it's a permissions column on a user's table that's never used. And if you know you only ever call that table in a certain way, if you ever see the permissions column brought back, you know something is out of the norm. You know, so they found some way to execute or modify queries to get through your data layer and get to the database. Now, you got to be careful because that first junior developer who comes in who says, I'm going to select star on users is going to trigger that. Right. Um, but that's but not a bad thing either. Yeah, because now you're educating them on, on learning this kind of stuff. Yeah. But the trick here is using deception for good. And what you're doing is you're just trying to arm the IT people with, with signals that seem to have more um, viability. An IT ops person probably isn't going to know what tables in your database are needed in your application. Right. But if you start exposing that to them and saying, here's what we want to do. We, if you ever see this data coming back, it's bad. We want to create this function to trigger on these type of behaviors. Um, you start being able to leverage the IT infrastructure in a way that it can help signal not just the IT people, but you as well. Mm -hmm. Because if it's going back through your application, you can start correlating things and seeing what, what areas of my app are weaker. Where do I see signals that maybe I want to put more um, depth into to be able to provide it as an example? Let's say you support username and passwords for logging in and you really want to know if someone's creds have ever been leaked because we all know people reuse passwords across different applications and services. Yeah. So the next time it's in, have I been pwned? You know that Troy's got your password. You know, mm -hmm. you want again. to know again, <laughs> you want to know about it. So, so one thing could be as simple as using, um, 
deceptive techniques together to give you maximum impact. So as an example, maybe you have in the robots.txt a slash admin portal or something that you know is not real, but you create a form on there with a username password field. So it looks like a legit admin portal. And now they start hammering you with creds and they're using something like Hydra or some sort of password spraying technique to try to hammer on it. Well, you don't really care that much that they're hammering on it because you know it's not a legit endpoint. But now you're collecting the usernames and maybe even the passwords that right. the ops team can have. Because now they can start looking and saying, do they have real user accounts? Do they Have they found that stuff out? Are they trying to use them? Are they using creds that might be legit? And now all of a sudden you can start going back to the users and saying, hey, you know what, Bob? <laughs> the Your password there is being used in a fake um, admin log in there. We A, want to change your creds and B, we need to find out why the heck they're going after you. Yeah. Um, that becomes valuable. And that's just where the developers can add more context through the applications. This sounds like a great conversation of dev and IT over pizza one afternoon. Just well, say, they hey, should be doing that anyways. Yeah. Like, you, I, you I, would I hope. But it, but you would hope, but it's also, it's just a talking point. It's like, can we slip something into the sprint that'll help you identify attempts? Yeah. You know, I love this idea of adding to the robots a folder to not scan that isn't real anyway. Like it exists, but it exists purely as that honeypot, as that trap that the only reason you would ever go here is because you read my robots file and so right. forth. As soon as you start getting down that chain of thinking of, We'll add just enough code to log as much information as possible and, you know, and essentially leave breadcrumbs for bad actors. You would only be here if right. you had been negative, if you had malware intent. Right. And if you start getting deeper and deeper in there, the, the more complex the attack pattern is, the more high fidelity signal that they're really trying to get in there. So things like uh, modifying a parameter that you have in your, let's say it's a hidden field, form field, or right. it's a, you know, it's just a parameter that's being passed in a get. And you know, it always should he say, you know, admin equals false. The first time it says admin equals true, you know that yeah, someone is flag. trying to manipulate that. That's a red flag, right? Yeah. That's way before they've succeeded. You've now got that information collected. Well, but you can even get deeper and more fun with this. Mm -hmm. There are ways to using um, uh, deceptive documents to your benefit as well. Um, an example that I gave in that talk on Honey Tokens was um, inside of Word documents, even if you have macros enabled, one of the capabilities that you have the ability of doing is embedding images that can be pulled from external sources. And you could hide the image in the in the footer of the document mm -hmm. and have it call to an endpoint on your app, which would say this document has been opened and I know it because I now have a request to an image on my server that I know should never, ever be requested. Right. An example might be mm. admin guide.docx that you've placed into the root of your application folder. It should never, ever be accessed. If mm. someone has access to that file, then you know they've got onto your system through some sort of local file injection. They found they've, some way to breach file access. That's right. And now they've got it. And as soon as they open it, guess what happens? Most attackers, when they extract the loot, whatever they're going to take, like a document out of the of this system, they have the ability, they'll take it back and they're not going to use it on the same tunnel. So it won't be that VPN. They're probably going to open it later or they're going to open it on their, their machine. And when that beacons back to your application, there's a good chance that the IP information you will extract from that request mm -hmm. will be more zoned into where they're attributing to where they actually are. Right. Mostly because they're not paying attention. They might be using their Cali box to do their hack. They'll pull out that doc to put in their mm -hmm. actual Windows partition to open it up and then boom, now you've actually got an IP and now you can correlate that. I can see that they came in through this robots.txt to this form. They went into this form and did all this other stuff. And then the next thing I see, there's access to this document. Whoops, we have a vulnerability somewhere. But now I'm able to correlate that information together and I have an ability to better attribute that's on there. And there's lots of ways you can do that. When we're attacking uh, .NET applications, one of our, uh, our methodologies is to try to get access to the files because we know where the bins are going to be, right? They're always going to be in the, in, in the bin directory in a DLL. We're going to extract that DLL so we can run it through Reflector and decompile the code so we can then look at how the application functions. This is one of the first things we're going to try to do to attack the application. Well, if you start doing things like embedding URLs in the resource bundle of the DLL, and someone starts going to that URL to try to figure out what the hell's going on. You know that someone has breached the server, downloaded the DLL, decompiled it, and yeah. they're now trying to get access. That should never, ever, ever happen. So if that ever gets beaconed, 
you know you have a problem. And these type of things are like people, are like, oh, no, no one's ever going to do that. Well, hopefully you're right. No one will ever do that. It means they never got there. But what happens the day it does? You now have a signal that something has happened. It's a great signal, too. Well, this gets back to the original question. It's like, how long does it take you to know that someone's at your walls yeah. banging away? Or after the walls, right? If they already get to your code, they've got to your database, you're already breached. Now the question is, where are we trying to find what's going on? Yeah. Every moment, every log is helpful to the ops team at that point. And anything that the devs can do to help with that, that's, 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 that's a useful component. Yeah, for sure. Great thinking. It's, I think, I think when we think of developers, you know, a lot of times, unless you're a security engineer and you're focused on it, you're not thinking like the attacker and nor should yeah. you. In many ways, it's hard to do that. But if you could start thinking about signals of areas and, and ways that people shouldn't be able to access things, you can use things like deceptive credentials. You could put in a web.config fake credentials to a database. If you ever see someone logging in with that, you know, they've got into your web.config, right? Like that to me would be an interesting thing to be looking at, like, you know, um, or or if someone's trying to inject, like maybe they've attacked into a server and you've got a honey user account that's on there, like an admin account that has been set up to never be authorized to log in. And if they all of a sudden are trying to log in and you see in, let's say, Azure Active Directory and a login attempt to an account that you know full well should never, ever have been used, um, you have evidence that they're trying to pivot in deeper into the into the infrastructure. These are all things that aren't expensive. And talking to my friends, Pat Hines uh, and Dwayne LaFlotte, um, their, their tack was to create, uh, to take the default admin, um, account if it was on bare metal and change the name of it to like, you know, Bob or something like that. And then create another account called admin. That's your honeypot. And actually, so actually the name of the account is the first signal to an attacker. Ah, that's what I want to hack. Yeah. Well, and what's interesting is that you can already, like in Active Directory, you can go in and set up an administrator account that looks and shows all the principles of being uh, an administrator, um, but set it up with no login time, right? So they have no rights to log in ever. So even if they were able to get a way to log in, A, it would never authenticate or authorize it. But now there's an actual audit record that the account was used. So if they're using something like Evil RM or they're using uh, PowerSploit or some sort of tool where they're trying to pivot off of those accounts, you're immediately being triggered. You know that that account is being used in a way it's not supposed to. But if you're a hacker and you log in as an admin and you get no credential prompt uh, or whatever, don't you, aren't you a little suspicious? Well, it depends how they get in. First off, a lot of times attackers aren't trying to log in. They're going to use some sort of exploitation okay. technique that's going to give them a shell. In many ways, that shell will give them enough access on there. So as an example, maybe they're able to breach your IIS uh, web server. They get in as the uh, network service or into the IIS app pool. They're in his app pool. Now they want to pivot off, right? They, they want to do what's called a privesk. And so they're looking to say, can I do something like run something like Mimikatz in memory to be able to extract hashes so I can then go crash track those or, or use them in a pass a hash attack or some other mechanism. There's lots of security mechanisms to leverage a little bit of a foothold and pivot into more perms. But that is the deceptive part of it. If all of a sudden they see a hash that's on a machine for an administrator account and they go crack it, and then they go try to use it to pivot off to another machine. Like one of the deceptive ones, I don't usually talk about this stuff, but um, there's an unintended.xml that is in every single Windows server that's ever auto-deployed, and you're supposed to remove it, and most people don't. I love putting it there for a different reason. I put in a fake administrator credential on there so that if someone tries logging in with that credential, I know damn well that they're enumerating the server and trying to get a foothold with an administrator credential. I know that that is someone doing it's up to no good. And that's an immediate flag response. That's a red signal. And that is immediately reviewed because no one should be ever looking at an unattend.xml file. Really and no one should be using that credential. And mm. those type of scenarios is how we start as defenders creating mechanisms because as attackers it's in our methodology if you get a foothold look for the unattend.xml because you're going to use those credentials if they're there you're going to go in, in there. there and there's technologies out there that exist that can help with that but i sometimes wonder about fragility when you add more technology on there you're just causing more risk because now there's more endpoint software running on your servers which you may not want but techniques for things like grabbing the hashes and and you know I, I on some of the servers I have I put on a purposely um, um, 
uh, Racinovich's um, sys internal tools, but they're not sys internal tools. They're actually, they look like sys internal tools, but when you run them, they're collecting all the information of the connection and they're providing all the information we need. And as soon as you've tried to do something like PS exec something to try to pivot it off, but you've actually sent me all the logs of data of your connections and everything that's in your session. Now I've got enough details to work backwards. And these are mm -hmm. things that um, uh, these type of uh, honey tokens um, and honey files are there to help tell the story once they've breached of who the attacker is. And, yeah, and where but but, but this is IT ops related. You yeah. want from a dev specific, you need to do this in the app itself because that's an earlier warning signal. Yeah, things like the I, deceptive I think that's the role for dev is you can help absolutely. us get the earliest signals in with the initial sets of logs of data for our infosec guys to take it on or even yeah. to get help. I mean, I, I like the idea of hey, we're a small organization, we don't have a full time ops guy or full-time security person, but we put enough instrumentation in places when we feel like we now have a sense we're being attacked and we can get some help. Yeah, absolutely. And and one of the other things I would suggest is that if you have a security team or an ops team, sit down with them and ask them, how do you correlate all your logs today? Mm -hmm. um, because what you want to understand is what do they use so that they can ingest your data into their system? So as yeah. an example, I'm a big fan of Azure Sentinel and I, I have that as a sim for everything I have on there. So there is a certain way that I structure all my logs and everything I have so that can be easily consumed in the Sentinel because then it can allow them when doing attribution to cross-reference not just the applications I'm responsible for, but any of the other infrastructure and the other components inside of Azure so that it links it back up to a single path. They can start attributing more together uh, because all that information works together. So if they're using, you know, if it's not Sentinel, maybe they got Splunk or they they got Alien Vault. They like, like there's tons of different solutions that are, are out there. Um, find out what they're using and make yeah. sure that you make your systems um, easily consumable. If it's not directly because you've got a link into it, have it be exportable in a reasonable way that doesn't impact your business continuity and your application, but allows them to be able to get those signals out yeah. of the system. The more in a info way. earlier. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. This is a lunch. This starts as a lunch and learn where IT SecOps comes in to talk to devs about how we monitor for exploits and attacks, and then leads into a conversation of how can we, with a little bit of code or features, add to our apps to help you give earlier signals and more information. Right. And it's so different like what we see with SRE, right? Like site reliability engineers, they're doing the mm -hmm. same thing. They're sitting down with devs to say, how do we get the telemetry out of your applications to know if an application isn't performing properly? Yeah. We're just looking at this from a security lens, right? It's like, sure. how yeah, do right. we provide those mechanisms in there so that we know about it? And of course, as you're building this in and trying to do it, just make sure that it has, it has no critical business impact. The last thing you want to do is have the product managers hate you for implementing stuff that is making your systems more frail. Sure. Um, but a lot of things we're talking about here have no direct impact. Adding a route that simply returns a null array should go through the same engineering practices yeah. and testing as everything else, but it does so little. It's not impacting anything else that's on no, there. No, but it's all, but it's raising a flag when a flag needs to be raised. Right. And one of the things I like doing is things like um, if you have a, a description endpoint, so maybe you got something like, um, you know, you have uh uh, mechs or you have swagger or sort of some kind of endpoint that is publishing what your APIs are supposed to do. Mm -hmm. Nothing says you can't add deceptive endpoints in the swagger documentation so that if someone's trying to post to that, you know that they're actually trying to go. I, I've used this before to be able to identify uh, internal threats where people were trying to elevate privileges using a fake endpoint. Right. Um, because it was just described in a way that allowed them to do it. And then ultimately, that transcended into a customer account. We were able to see where one of their competitors was trying to log in as them using this type of technique. Hmm. And I was just going like, um, we need to notify them, A, that this yeah. is happening. B, here's who's doing it. And C, yeah. there, there's something that needs to be looked at there. And That's I think these things all combined together gives you huge ability to have high fidelity signals of real attacks, not children hacking at it right yeah. not script kitties not well, the nice thing when it's driven this way is if it's noisy you can turn it off or improve it like it's just code yeah right so but done right you should never hear it unless yeah, there's a unless real something signal. important and i think that's the challenge is if you do too trivial an implementation here you could have something noisy 
And then people start ignoring it. And that's dangerous. Yeah. And I think when you first roll something like this out, there should be as part of your incident response plan, a mechanism to say, we're only doing this right now in monitoring mode. We are not to take action on it. Let's see what happens over the next few months and see what this is doing. Don't smash the big red button the first time this goes off. Let's be suspicious for a while. And understand what it's doing, right? Because like, if you have red teams or pen testing firms that you're engaging with, you want to know about this kind of stuff because you want to mm-hmm. see if they're going to trigger that kind of stuff. And this is where the blue team gets together with the red team to do it. This is why I love purple team. It's like the developers and the security people should be working together to try to understand what is a real signal versus yeah. just someone playing. And if you're getting too much noise simply because let, let's use an example, I would never do something like put an admin endpoint in a disallow uh, in a robots.txt because that is a common endpoint that's in every single word list out there. I guarantee you it it's will noisy. trigger. Yeah. It's too noisy. They're, yeah, if there are strip kitty sweepers looking for that. You're right. Gonna... And, and that's not good enough, right? Like, no. But if you put something in there like admin slash GUID where they're looking like, oh, wait a minute, that's not normal. Yeah. Um, then you, you want that sense of intentionality that they looked at it, thought about it, acted on it. Right, right. And just yeah. remember, though, that not all spiders are going to honor robots.txt. So you may very sure. well just get a spider that going and sees it and does it. That doesn't in itself make that an attack. It's but attack. it's when you combine it with other things, because guess what? A spider's not going to manipulate uh, parameters and in your yeah. post or change a cookie to, to, to modify it in a yeah. way to try to change some behavior. These are things they don't do. So if I could give one piece of advice to every developer out there, I highly recommend that you find cycles to go to something like some of the um, uh, hacker universities that are out there for bug bounty, things like Hacker One and Bug Crowd. They publish like the Hacker CTF 101 and the Bug Crowd University, where they're teaching hackers how to look for bugs in your applications. And the reason I want you to do that is to learn their methodologies. How do they go and recon your app? How do they look for these type of vulnerabilities and then start looking and saying, okay, well, sometimes they're going to find real vulnerabilities that that could be, but in the type of methodologies that they have to use, can I understand what is someone trying to hack my app versus a drive-by where someone's just you know, Checking indexing to see if the, the doors locked or not. Yeah. Right. You know, at some point you got to say, where is intent? And mm-hmm. when when I see things like people reverse engineering JavaScript to call an API endpoint that I know full well should never get called, that is a high signal of intent. Yeah. I want to know everything that person's doing. Yeah. I want to see. And that's such a fun conversation through. to have with the this the the ops guys because they just not, may not be aware. It's just not that hard for us to write something like that. Yeah. Add that thing in. But how should I raise it to you? What data should I gather? Like we had a few minutes conversation is a very small piece of code that could just give us a few weeks head start on an on an on an intentional attack. Jane, I feel like we could go on talk about this forever. But uh, what's next for you? What's in your inbox, my friend? Well, I'm continuing to work on a lot of security research that's on the offensive side. So I've been I've been getting asked by a lot of people to uh, help with how to attack Azure and understand that. So I've been doing a bunch of research and, and working with Microsoft on some of that stuff, but I'm a- actually hoping to, to start providing some more content on that either through my YouTube channel or, or I might even uh, be helping, um, uh, a, a security agency that's going to be releasing it as a course. Um, just because I think this is where development and IT need to merge in the middle. And that's understanding how to offensively look at code in Azure. That's just because I'm an Azure guy, right? So, right. Um, and and I love the red team. I love the exploitation side. It's just something that I've always enjoyed. And I spend so much time on the blue team that 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 doing the red team stuff is always a lot of fun. I like the idea of putting some paranoia into the attacker, right? I mean, us as defenders, we've been paranoid for a while. The idea <laughs> yeah. that the attacker would trip something that gives them away. I love everything about that. Yeah. Well, it, it's putting it back on the on the defenders. You know, when blue team now has an edge, it mm-hmm. starts being useful. And if we start looking at that, there is so much more in honey tokens that can be done. And I've been exploring like like that. Like, how would you look at something like? How would you know if someone's trying to enumerate your Cosmos DB? Right? How would you know if someone's in your storage account? deeply yeah. trying to extract that stuff. And that, that's some of the stuff I've got now is I, I've got a ton of Python code that's actually attacking the stuff left, right, and center. And, and it's not triggering anything at my, Microsoft. And it's like, ah, okay, good. Now we got to go deeper. How do we keep do, getting, getting in here? And then working backwards and saying, okay, now how do we defend against that? How do we do this? Because there's a shared responsibility model in the cloud. And I think there's a problem where we as developers um, just 
when we start using the cloud, we're like, we're abdicating responsibility and saying, oh yeah, Microsoft takes care of that. They got the SOC for this. They got the security operations for this. And it's like, no, 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 it doesn't work that way. Your app is your app and your yeah. data is your data and you're responsible for it. So how do we start creating mechanisms to be able to know about that? So we go right back to the beginning of the show and we're talking about things like package management, right? Like Azure DevOps and, and GitHub and uh, they all have mechanisms to look for these type of packages. But what if, what if we have the ability to inject these packages uh, and these things like containers into ACR in a malicious way that can mm -hmm. then be manipulated? There's a lot we can start doing because everything's getting automated now for deployment. And if we have infrastructure as code that can be manipulated through things like ARM and Bicep and all these mechanisms in Azure, there's a ton of risk. And I want to make sure that we're exposing developers to what that risk looks like and how to look for it so that hopefully they'll get it fixed before it becomes production code. Dana, Excellent. thank you so much. This has been a very enlightening for me, especially. I know you guys talk about this stuff all the time, but uh, <laughs> thanks for, for sharing your knowledge with us today. No problem. I'm here anytime you guys want to talk about security. I love it. Sounds good. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got